Welcome to the third and final installment of our series entitled, How to Stay Married Forever and Like It. If you are a guest with us, uh, if this is your first time, perhaps here at Pioneer, just for this series, I want to say a very special thank you for being here. We are so glad that you took the time to come and to be a part of our uh, Saturday morning family here. Uh, This day that we call Sabbath, we actually do this every single weekend, and you are welcome to join us at any time in the future. Nine o'clock in the morning is our first service, 1045, of course, is our second, and 1145, my wife, thank you, yes, 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 yes. 11.45 11.45 is our second service, and we would love to have you come and join us again. Consider this to be your standing invitation uh, to be a part of our campus family here. Also, if you have not yet discovered it, if you have appreciated what you've seen over the last few Sabbaths here or prior to that, good news, there are recordings of these that are archived uh, with links off of our website. You can go to pmchurch.org, that's pmchurch.org. And you'll find links there that will take you to most any service that's been done in the last 20 years. I don't know. It's been a long time, uh, including the last couple of weeks if you wish to pass those on to other people. Again, very glad that you've chosen here to be with us. Now, before we begin officially, part three, there is one item that I want to take a, a few moments here to discuss. Because any time that there's a serious discussion about marriage and what makes it healthy, etc., the question comes up, what do you do if you are the only one in a marriage relationship that is willing to work on the marriage? Uh, if there's, both of you are working, uh, the promises in God's word, the guarantees for, for healthfulness in a marriage is indeed dependent. It's predicated on both husband and wife being fully committed to God and being willing to work through the troubles that come. But absent that, what do you do if you are the only one willing to work on the relationship? You know, that, that could take an entire sermon on its own. We do not have that kind of time, so I'm simply going to offer three pieces of counsel here very briefly before part three. And I do want to make the same caveat today that I did last week. If you are in an abusive marriage, what I'm going to say here next almost certainly does not apply to you. Please do not try to make it apply to you. You need to find a safe place and get help. If your marriage is not abusive but is not healthy, and you are the only one in the relationship that is willing to work on it, three things for you. Number one, know that you are not alone. God has not abandoned you. You are precious to him. You are the apple of his eye. He loves you, and he wants to give you what you need to endure. Every tear that you have shed has been marked by Jesus Christ himself. Every ounce of pain that you have endured, Jesus knows all about it. He cares for you, he loves you, and he wants to give you what you need to be able to make it through. Secondly, do all the good for your spouse you know to do. Do all the good for your spouse you know to do. Pray for them daily. Do the things that have been mentioned in this series, particularly what we're going to talk about today. Do them to the best of your ability. Some of them you will not be able to do very well because it takes two, but do the best that you can. Do all the good for your spouse that you know to do. And number three, remember that marriage is not primarily about your happiness, but preparing you for God's kingdom. Now, that may seem like a little bit of a backhanded piece of encouragement, huh? 
In fact, some of you may know an old saying. Uh, It's been said in many ways. This is just my paraphrase. Uh, If you have a healthy marriage, you will have a lifetime of happiness. If you have an unhealthy marriage, you will become a philosopher. And we chuckle because there is some truth to this. And it is a piece of truth that should not be ignored. Is happiness something that God wants for your marriage? Well, generally speaking, of course. But if happiness is not there and your spouse is not willing to work on things, I would gently encourage you to listen carefully to what God is trying to say in the midst of your marriage's troubles. Hang in there. Stick with it. Don't leave. Learn the lessons that God is trying to teach you through those difficulties. Now, I do not say this lightly. You know, sometimes this kind of spiritual growth, when, when, you're, when you're trying to work on it, but you're not getting any help from the other side, this can be tough as nails. It can hurt deeply. It's hard. But God knows what that kind of suffering is like because He too has loved people who have not loved Him as they should in return. He knows all about it. And if you are willing to learn something deep from God, you will find some things about him that are not accessible to other people in other situations. And when Christ soon returns to this planet, your reward will be rich indeed. And I would be remiss if I didn't also say this. If you are the spouse listening right now who is unwilling, and and you're here or perhaps you're listening to a recording of this message, I would gently invite you to consider this. God only asks you to be as gracious to your spouse as he has been to you. God only asks you to be as gracious to your spouse as he has been to you. You know, some spouses are terrible at marriage. It's just a sad fact. Uh, Maybe some of you listening right now, you're in that boat. You married a poor marriage practitioner and you are tired of it. The things that they have said, the trust that they have broken, the hurt that they have brought to you, all this and much more has been your reality and you are tired of it. You have shut down. You are done. And to you, I would say, I get it. At least in part, I get it. Not because of my own marriage, but because as a child, this was my reality. This is what I grew up with. And as a pastor, I have seen it many times over the years. And in light of that experience, I would still just remind you again, God only asks you to be as gracious to your spouse as he has been to you. If you're not clear on what that means, I would encourage you to read, for instance, the book of Mark in the New Testament. See what Jesus did for you. See what Jesus forgave you. Pay particular attention to what happened on the cross where Jesus died. You know, the Bible tells us that very rarely will anyone die for someone else. Possibly for a good man or a good woman, someone might dare to die, but God has shown his love for us in this. While we were still in active rebellion against him, Jesus Christ died that we might live. That's how gracious God is calling you to be, only as much as Christ has been with you. So please, I would gently challenge you. Consider forgiving. Consider getting back in the game. Consider saying to your spouse, okay, let's try something different this time. Go see a Christian counselor. 
Anyone can keep their problems to themselves, but God didn't make you to be just anyone. God called you to be his son. He called you to be his daughter. Find a counselor. Find someone you can both agree on who can help and let them help. A healthy marriage can still be within your grasp. And if you find a healthy marriage, you will not regret the effort it took to get it. So don't give up. God is calling you. Good things can still happen. And now for our main topic for today. Many years ago, I read an article, and uh, if I still have this article, it is still buried in the same place as my wedding pictures are somewhere in the strata of my basement. Okay, so I, I don't have it here with me. But it made quite an impression <clears throat> on my mind. I remember it. It was a, a party that took place in New York City. I believe it was sponsored by the mayor's office. The invitation was sent out. Any resident of New York City that has been married 50 years or longer. They were all invited to come to this, this celebration. I mean, what a great idea, right? I mean, can you imagine being at that particular festival? I mean, oh, you know, we would assume they are older folk, probably not many 30-year-olds that qualified, all right? So, so they're all there, and any four people there, two couples, guaranteed to have at least a century of marital experience. Wow! I mean, that's astonishing. All there in one place. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of them that were there. And I, you know, I read the article. It was very engaging. You see the pictures. You know, happy couples talking there. The one outstanding impression that I left reading that article with was this. I want to be there. Someday I want to deserve an invitation to that party. Now, I pray that we're not on the planet long enough for that to happen. Right? We're coming up on 29 years here, so you know, 50 is still a little bit off. There. I would much prefer to be in heaven, amen? But if it were to happen, I would want to get an invitation. I would want to make it all the way there towards the end of my life. I would want to be still married to my wife. So what does it take to get there? What do couples do that have made it, so, they make it all the way there to the end? What do couples do to make that happen? <laughs> well, let's do some digging. Take your Bible, please, and take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Page 789 in the Pew Bible that's there somewhere nearby you. Page 789, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. We're going to reread the uh, scripture that Pastor Prescott read so ably here just a few moments ago. We want to solidify this in your mind. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. You see, there is an overarching principle that if you can remember it, you have an excellent chance of making it all the way to the finish line, happily married forever to the same person. In fact, if you forget everything else in this series, but you remember this one overarching principle, you will be doing well. It is the, to be the biggest tool in your marriage toolbox. Here it is, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. Husbands, it says, love your wives. And we might say, how much? What, how, much how much love is that? Answer, just as Christ loved the church, wow, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in this same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
Wow. <laughs> Let me put this on the screen for you. The foundational principle for reaching the finish line, for being married forever and liking it, is to serve your spouse as Christ served the church. To serve your spouse as Christ served the church. Any lesser example, well, you might have some success, but if you want to aim for the top, if you want to aim happily, married forever and liking it, aim for the prime example. Serve your spouse as Christ served the church. Again, marriage is not primarily about our, our own personal happiness or our love life, etc. It is a tool to prepare us for God's kingdom. Marriage is a school. It, it is a learning environment that God has graciously created so that we can understand what it means not just to be in relationship with another person, but most of all, to be in relationship with Him. Now, this is why the Bible puts so much strong counsel for strong marriages that we might be satisfied with our spouses, that we might experience happiness with them till death, and not merely that for ourselves, but that we will literally get a foretaste of heaven. This is why God has given us marriage. So if you want to reach the finish line with a happy marriage, serve your spouse as Christ served the church. And you might be thinking, well, Pastor Shane, how do we do that? Is anybody wondering that? Thank you. Someone is tracking. Yes, okay. Okay, since you asked the question, let me tell you. Two keys, two key ways to serve your spouse as Christ served the church. Uh, key number one, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Just turn back one page from where you just were. Ephesians chapter 4, page 788, verse 26. Short verse here, but a good one. It says, In your anger... Do not sin. Hmm. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, some couples have taken a rather wooden approach to this particular counsel. And they have said that after sundown, you can't argue. But any time before that is open season. Okay? <laughs> And I would like to think that, that the Bible is actually getting to a more powerful and practical practice here, and it is the first key to reaching the finish line with a happy marriage. If you want to serve your spouse as Christ served the church, key number one, deal with marital conflict effectively. Deal with marital conflict effectively. A story. And I need to tell you right at the beginning of the story, I have permission to tell this story, okay? You'll see why I give that caveat in just a few moments. Uh, it was probably, I think we've been married for about three years or so. We were living uh, here in Berrien Springs out on Lake Chapin Road. Uh, being seminary students, we had a really nice house, okay? And... Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's a complete and total joke, all right? We were, we were poor. I was on seminary uh, uh, stipend, etc. We were very enthralled with our house, though. It was dirt cheap and looked it, okay? Uh, it was, in fact, such a good house that, that there was one more tenant after us, and then, no joke, they bulldozed it into the basement, covered it over, and walked away, okay? So this was a good place, but truly, we were very grateful for it. It definitely served our needs, and the price was right. Uh, to help supplement things, my wife, uh, who's a nurse, was working float pool, uh, and that can be arduous. 
And you never quite know exactly where it is you're going to be, what floor you're going to be on, the hours that you'll be working. It it can be really challenging. She had gone for a string, many days, uh, of doing oddball things and, and moving from floor to floor. She came home one night and she was absolutely exhausted. Now, my wife is generally speaking an angel, okay? It's, it's me that has the trouble, all right? This occasion, she was absolutely dog-tired. She, she rolls into bed. She, she says, hey, come and tell me goodnight. So I go into the room, and an issue comes up. Now, I wish I could tell you what the issue was, but neither of us can recall. It was so important we forgot, okay? And, and so we're talking about this, and, and in my mind's eye, this was a very small thing. And so I mentioned something, well, hey, what about, you know, just before you go to sleep, what do you think about, should we do this and such? And she bristled. So, well, no, I don't, I don't think we should do that. Well, I mean, it's not a big deal, but, well, no, I think it is a big deal. And this thing just starts to ratchet up. I mean, like, whoa, hold on, you know, I'm looking at my watch, this is too late. I mean, what's going on? And I'm thinking, she's really, really tired, and she is not slowing down. And finally, she says, I am done talking about this. And she reaches over and she turns the light out and pulls the covers over her head. Being an intuitive husband, (laughs) I sensed that something was wrong. And I thought to myself, you know, the odds of fixing this one seem pretty low right now. I think I'll just leave the room. And I did. Closed the bedroom door behind me. I went out in the living room where my desk was. And I started to try to focus on my seminary homework again. All right, time out for a moment. You need to know something about the significance of what had just happened in the story you know, my, my wife and I subscribe to the biblical idea that a husband is the priest of his home. Now, some of you go apoplectic with me even mentioning that particular phrase. So let me quickly say, I know that this has been abused many a time. So let me be clear about what that means in my household, okay, in our household. The husband is a priest, and that means, among other things, that he is to serve his wife sacrificially, In the Old Testament, if you read in the Bible, uh, priests would offer sacrifices according to the mandates of the law. So they, you know, offer a sheep or a goat or or doves, whatever the case might be, right? In a New Testament marriage, if I can use that phrase, the husband is the priest, but he doesn't offer those kinds of sacrifices. The only sacrifice he offers is himself on behalf of his wife. He is to give himself up for her to make sure, listen carefully here, to make sure that she has what she needs for God's will to be done in her life. Not my will, but God's will. Because I serve him, therefore I serve her. That is a big part of what it means to be the priest in one's home. I am to sacrifice my life for her, spiritually always, physically if necessary. And in our relationship, part of this priestly duty meant for me to be a backstop. If for some reason my wife or family members stumble, it is my task to do all that I can to stand firm. And for us, that included making sure that disagreements were settled in our favor. Not in mine, but for the health of our marriage. Even if one of us felt like giving up. For the first time in our relationship, we dated for over four years before we got married. We're about married, married year number three at this point, so about seven years. For the first time, I had walked away without seeing the end of a disagreement. All right, time in.
I'm sitting there at my desk. I'm trying to read and write and try to focus my mind. Not quite sure exactly what just happened. And about five minutes later, the bedroom door creaked open. Now, every door in that house creaked when it opened, right? But this was the nearest one. And I knew it was the bedroom door. And a very bleary-eyed Darlene sticks her head out. And she says to me, aren't you going to finish it? You see, not only was I worried about what had just happened and the newness of that scenario, she too, even in her exhaustion, was thinking, oh, wait, wait a second, why? I mean, this is, this is new. <laughs> he left. What does that mean? And I said, oh, uh, sure, let's, uh, let, let's, let's finish this. And I came back in and I sat on the bed and it probably took us no more than four or five minutes to solve this, this, this issue and kissed her goodnight and went outside in a very different frame of mind to work on my homework this time. It is so important that every married couple learn how to resolve conflict effectively. Because if you don't, scenarios just like that one that my wife and I had will happen to you sooner or later. But if you don't know how to resolve them, or if, or if you don't think it's important that you resolve them, trouble will come your way. You see, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, resolve it. Fix it. Don't, don't just let it fester. You see, unresolved conflict in a marriage relationship is like cancer. If it goes underground, if it's unresolved, if you just think, well, hey, we'll, we'll go to bed and we'll sleep on it and the next day everything will be fine. No, it won't. The cancer will still be there. And if you do not attend to it, it will metastasize and eventually it will destroy the marriage body. So don't let it happen to you. And you might be thinking, well, so, so what are 10 effective ways that you could solve conflict in marriage? If you thought that, that's amazing. And good news. I happen to have 10 things that I'm going to share with you. This is a speed round. We're going to move very quickly. These are 10 very practical tips for resolving conflict effectively in marriage. Some of you were driving to church today and saying to yourselves, oh, I hope he doesn't give us anything that we can use today. You're about to be disappointed, okay, because this is very practical stuff. Are you ready? Here we go. Practical ways, 10 tips for resolving conflicts effectively in marriage. Number one, talk. We talked about this last week. I'm not going to say much about it now. The silent treatment is for little kids in elementary school. You are now in the big leagues. You are married, okay? You need to talk about this. If you're too hot under the collar, by all means, take a break. Step out of the room for a moment. Get some fresh air. Prayerfully think about it. Come back and talk about it because talking is generally how these things are resolved. Number two, avoid emotional reasoning. You say, what's that about? Well, the reason why most divorces happen is because people feel like that's the right thing to do. The reason why most conflicts in marriage happen is because people feel that's how things ought to be. Now, feelings are important. There's no doubt about that. But feelings are like the spice of life. If you have an entire plate of spice, you will get sick. Okay? So, while feelings are important, we need to think carefully when we get into conflict with our spouse. So notice this. When you get into conflict with your spouse, the next time this happens, before you open your mouth, 
Ask yourself the question, if I didn't feel the way I do right now, would I respond to my spouse in the way I'm about to? You might be thinking, well, Pastor Shane, I mean, that, that's why I would respond in the first place at all. It's because I feel a certain way. Yeah, exactly right. Feelings are important, but they should not determine how you ultimately treat your spouse or how you ultimately resolve a conflict. We are instead called to resolve things according to the principles of God's Word, the Bible, principles of love, principles of compassion, principles of... Tip number three. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Now, this is actually a version of the golden rule. Uh, What's the golden rule say? Do unto as you would have them do unto... Okay. This is not something society came up with. Jesus himself is the one who said this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is where that golden rule is found. When you are having an argument, it's probably because you want your spouse to see things like you see them. And God is in essence saying, okay, I get it. But why not extend the same thing you want for you to your spouse first? Because that opens the door. It helps people to see that you're reasonable. Seek first to understand what they are saying. Listen to what they have to say. Let them explain their side of things. You'll have your chance. You can explain it. This is the kind of give and take that makes for healthy conflict resolution. Tip number four, use reflective listening. Uh, Reflective listening is simply where you reflect back what you think your spouse just said. And if that sounds easy, wait till you're in the heat of the moment and try it. It is fascinating how difficult it can be sometimes to rightly understand what your spouse is saying. Now, my wife always understands what I'm saying. I am working on it in there. I'm just, I'm a little bit slower, okay? And gentlemen, sometimes you may share my fate, right? So here's what you do, particularly if you have an intractable problem in your relationship, something that just, you you can't seem to get to it. It may be because you don't actually understand what the problem is. So here's what you do. Reflective listening. Have your spouse say, tell me what you think the problem is. Now say it. Okay, well, uh, when you do thus and such, it makes me feel this way. Okay. And then you, you get to say now back to them what you just heard. Okay. I, I remember one couple that I was doing this with. Uh, uh, this is within the last 30 years at a church within 10,000 miles of here. And I was uh, doing a, some brief counseling with them. And uh, the, I had, we were doing reflective listening. And the, the wife said... Uh, I asked her to state the problem. And she said, well, when you let the dog onto the sofa, it makes it difficult for me to keep the house clean. I said, okay, good. I looked at the husband. I said, you reflect back now. What did she just say? And he said, you think I'm an idiot. I knew we were on to something, okay? We, we, we had struck gold right there, okay? And, and, and tru- truly, this was a turning point because I was like, um, you know, that's not, that's not precisely what she said. Uh, there may be some more nuance that you're missing. And I began to explain back and she was just as surprised as, as I was about it. Long story short, that enabled us to actually get to what the real issue was. And I'm not going to go through all the, the, the remainder of that conversation. I am saying reflective listening can really help to clarify If you need some more tips about how to use that, Google it online. There's some good counsel that's on there. Tip number five. Eliminate always and never from your conflict resolution vocabulary. You're always late. You're never on time. 
These are not helpful words when you're trying to resolve a conflict with your spouse. Uh, Number one, it's not true. No one is that consistent. And number two, you're basically painting them into a corner, right? Because you're kind of judge and jury. You're not even giving them the opportunity to explain themselves. You say, you always do this. You never get this done, kind of thing. Just eliminate those words from your conflict resolution vocabulary. Tip number six, be willing to compromise. You remember that party in New York City for the 50 years plus marriage people? In the interviews that they did, they were asked to share uh, some of the tips, their secrets for success. And one thing came up repeatedly, be willing to compromise. Oddly enough, this is the biblical principle. Let me put it on the screen here for you. Philippians 2 verse 3. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do, Do how much? Nothing. Okay, so that probably applies here to conflict resolution, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Hmm, interesting. As it turns out, there are actually very few things worth erasing the happiness of your marriage over, even if it means you don't always get your way. Don't compromise on your moral principles. But on nearly everything else, consider others, including your spouse, better than yourself and be willing to compromise. Tip number seven, don't keep score. I I probably don't even need to say much more, but for those of you who aren't sure why the front half of the church just giggled, let me tell you what they're talking about, right? Uh, Keeping score, little story for you. Uh, The first full day of my honeymoon... Uh, We honeymooned in Canada. We got married in February, so it was cold. Tickets to Canada are cheap in February, okay? And so we went up to Banff, Lake Louise area, beautiful even in winter. And the the first full day, we had breakfast in the hotel, and then lunch is is on its way, right? And we've got, you know, this smorgasbord of restaurants around the area there that we could choose from. And so me wanting to be the accommodating brand-new spouse, I thought to myself, you know what? There's some places I want to go to eat, but... Whatever she says, that's where we're going to go. So I said, hey, uh, Darlene, where do you want to go for lunch? And she named a restaurant, and immediately my stomach just kind of turns a little bit. I I don't want to go there. Well, uh, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. That would be great. So we go to that restaurant for lunch. Lunch finally wears off. Supper is on the horizon. And I think to myself, ah, you know, I'm going to be a good husband, accommodated, whatnot. So Darlene, where would you like to go for supper? And she said, well, where would you like to go? I said, oh, no, 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 it's fine. Anywhere you want to go is fine, all right? And she names another restaurant that I have no interest in going to whatsoever. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, okay, that's fine. That would be great. Let's go. So we go to that restaurant. Next day, we have breakfast at the hotel. Lunch is coming up, okay? And I say to her, so, where would you like to go to eat? And she names a Greek restaurant, okay? Now, I'm a gourmet. I wanted to go to Denny's, okay? And there was a Denny's nearby. I mean, this is, is, we're here. I've gone through all these meals. And and she says, she names this Greek restaurant, and I could not take it anymore. I said, why do we always go where you want to go to eat? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, every single place we've gone, you've chosen. I said, but you said I could choose. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, why why don't we go where I want to go to eat? I was keeping score. Okay. Psychologists call this passive-aggressive behavior. Okay. So, so here, here's a general rule. 
if you feel that this is important enough to save up for later, and you know why you save up, right? I mean, because this is leverage, okay? So you're all kind and everything is nice and sweet until you really need something. And then you, you, you take your, your score and you dump it out in the other person's head and you know, you, all this is leverage. You never do this for me, blah, blah, blah. If it's important enough to bring up later, it's probably important enough to bring up now. And if it's not important enough to bring up later, and it's not important enough to bring up now, just let it go. Just let it go. Because when you keep score, eventually you're going to look to win. That's what scores are for, isn't it? Be careful. Don't keep score. Be generous. If it's important enough to talk about later, talk about it now. Number eight, pray in the mirror. This one is simple. Don't pray against your spouse. Pray for yourself. God, show me what my part is in this disagreement. Help me to own it. Give me the courage to do what you would have me to do about my stuff. Tip number nine. Seek to settle an argument in your, as in plural, in your favor. This goes back to the story of Darlene and I there on on Lake Chapin Road. Don't seek your own blessing. Seek the blessing of your relationship. And finally, tip number 10, get someone to help you. If you hit a brick wall, go find somebody, perhaps a trusted friend that you both agree on, and you would need to both agree on that, or more likely a professional Christian counselor. There's no shame in going to somebody that has more pieces of the puzzle in their box than you do. The biggest shame is not taking that step. How many a marriage has been lost because somebody in the relationship was not willing to go to a counselor and get the help that they needed? So find a good Christian counselor. Lay out the problem and let them help you. However you decide to do it, make the decision. Draw a line in the sand and learn to resolve conflict in your marriage effectively. It is a first key method to serving your spouse as Christ served the church and moving you happily towards the finish line with your spouse. Key number two. If you have a Bible, take a look at Revelation chapter 19, please. Revelation chapter 19, page 832 in your pew Bible, page 832, Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Now, this may seem like an unlikely place to find a a dramatic key for serving your spouse, but man, this one is good. This is gold. If you are interested in, 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 in going major league with your marriage, this is it, all right? The picture here in Revelation is, is one of the second coming of Jesus Christ, okay? So Revelation has lots of symbols. It's a book of prophecy, etc., including prophecies about the second coming. So Jesus here is symbolized at, uh, upon his return, an event that I think is going to happen very soon. And in verse 6, this is what it says. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. Huh, there's a marriage here. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Now, those of you that have studied this passage before, tell tell me, uh, uh, who's the Lamb? Okay, this is Jesus. Who's the bride? The church, all those that have truly trusted in Christ, these are the ones that are there. So so the picture is one of the second coming being a wedding ceremony in essence. Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming down to greet his bride, the church, those that have chosen to follow him. There's a wedding taking place here. Look at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who's that? 
Okay, this is Jesus. Okay, the symbolism is still Jesus here. With justice he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many what? Crowns. Who wears a crown? A king does. So if a king marries someone, what does that make his spouse? A queen. Hmm. If you are going to treat your spouse like Christ treats the church, if you're going to make it to the finish line with your spouse happily and forever, then treat them like royalty. When I was dating my wife, this did not come naturally to me. I was not raised with this stuff, okay? I was raised with other things. But I really wanted to have a healthy marriage. And so my mentors helped me out. They gave me some tips as to how, how to treat my, my girlfriend at the time. I was hoping to be my wife at some point in the future there. How to treat her like royalty. So I did things like this. I started habits like this. I began to open doors for my wife. If we walk towards a building, I, I would open the door for her. If we get in the car, I, you know, I would open the door for her so that she could get in. It's not because my wife is physically incapable of opening the door. She's done that for 20 years prior to me dating her, all right? It was my way, though, of being able to say, you matter to me. You are special. You are a VIP in my sight. You are royalty. I would carry the umbrella for her when it rained. Now, sometimes I still get this one wrong because there's quite a height difference between us, and I've got the umbrella up here, and the rain is coming under, and she's getting wet, all right? So, I mean, you, it takes practice, all right? I'm still working on some of these things. But that she is royalty, so I want to I help her in that way. You know, every so often, I would write her little notes saying how much I appreciated what she did and put it someplace that she wouldn't expect it so she'd be surprised by it. I would buy flowers and write cards occasionally, even if I didn't entirely understand why she liked stuff like that because I wasn't really into it, but she was. I'm embarrassed to say it, but one of the things I had to unlearn in my dating time with Darlene was that I would, I, I would make jokes at her expense in front of other people. And one of the things I had to learn is that I would now need to go out of my way to compliment her in public, in front of other people. Tell her how nice she looked in that outfit or, or that she did a great thing with her work or with her schoolwork or with her cooking, something like that. Whenever possible, I became her valet. To this day, when we travel, nine and a half times out of ten, I load the car, I carry her bags whenever I can. When I'm at home, I, I bring the groceries in whenever possible. And some of you that are younger right now are thinking to yourself, man, that is old school. To which I would say, yeah, and so is happiness. But I don't see too many people complaining when they have happiness in their lives. You see, it seems to me that the ones who lived years ago in ways that we now call old school, that they had longer marriages, stronger families, less divorce, more stability, and more fulfillment. I'm not saying they were perfect, because they definitely were not. But I do believe they got some important things right. And maybe, just maybe, if more of us were more like the old schoolers, maybe if we did what they did, we just might get what they got. And when you're ready to treat your wife like full royalty, say with everything you do and speak that her honor, her dignity, her fulfillment, and her safety is more important to you than anything else except for God. And if you really want to plug this thing to the, to the nth degree, here's what I would encourage you to do. When you are ready to treat your spouse like royalty, husbands, sit down, ask the question that nearly every queen wants to hear. 
ask her, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate our marriage? And if it's less than a 10, ask her a second question. What can I do to make it a 10? You, ask, you let her ask, the, you ask her those questions and you receive the answers. Then do your best to do it. Do the things that she asks you to do to the best of your ability. And husbands, I'll tell you a secret. You treat her like the queen she is and in most cases, soon enough, she'll start to treat you like the king you are. And wives, what about you? Have you considered treating your husband like royalty? Now, this may mean different things for different people, but let me give you some examples based on my own experience. Uh, Wives, find out what your husband likes, the little things, and, and get them for him occasionally. You know, for me, uh, one of the things I like, I, I, I'm into car stuff, automotive things, kind of obscure stuff, older cars, etc. And every now and then my wife will buy me like a, a, a magazine from, you know, whatever, Barnes & Noble or, or Books A Million, whatever. I could never afford a subscription to those types of magazines because they're horrendously expensive. But every now and then we can take out a loan and get one of just a single copy, right? And she'll bring this to me and I'm like, oh, that is so cool, right? Uh, Darlene, make sure that I am well fed. You know, an army travels on its stomach. Perhaps, wives, your husband does as well. Wives, respect yourself. Show by the way that you dress and carry yourself that you are honored to be your husband's wife. Husbands delight in the royal bearing of their wives. And here's a big one, ladies, for your royal husband. Tell him regularly what you admire about him. You know, times may be a change in as things go by and the years roll on, but survey after survey still tells us that one of the things that husbands crave almost more than anything else is the admiration of their wives. So tell him what you admire about him and do it in front of other people. <laughs> you know, I tell you what, if I preach a sermon and a hundred of you come up afterwards and say, that was terrible, but I go to my wife and she says, that was pretty good, you lose. Because I, I, I covet my wife's admiration. I want to be worthy of her admiration. Okay. And yes, you too, wives, need to sit down and ask your husbands those questions. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate our marriage? And if the answer is less than a 10, ask them that second question. What can I do to help make it a 10? And do whatever you can to be able to make that marriage healthy. And wives, notice carefully, what's true for the husbands is true for you too. You treat him like the royal husband he is, and soon enough he'll start to treat you like the royal wife that you are. My challenge to you is this. Serve. Serve your spouse as Christ served the church. Learn to solve conflict in marriage effectively. Never stop treating your spouse like royalty. This kind of service is the golden key that can help any marriage reach the finish line happily and forever. Husbands and wives, present and future, may the Lord grant you His strength and His wisdom. May the Lord make His face shine upon your marriage and give you peace. And may Christ's grace, power, and love guide your marriage to last happily and forever. Amen. Amen.